Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. So if you're at the Gospel of John, there is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and he is the fourth gospel. And when you get to John, John is writing after the other gospels have already been written. And by this time, John is coming back out of exile. So if you read the book of Revelation, last book, you want to learn all about end times and when Jesus is coming back, you can read that book. And if you figure it out, please let me know. But he's written that in exile. He's come back to the mainland, and he's the last of the apostles, meaning Matthew, Mark, all of them are gone. He's the last. He's the last of the 12 that have walked and talked with Jesus. And people are probably still asking him, hey, what was Jesus like? What did he look like? What did he do? Did this really happen? And they're probably pestering him constantly because he was one of the few who was an eyewitness to Jesus, walked with him for three years, ate food with him, saw him do the miracles, saw him resurrect, and he's older. And you remember in life, you learn things in high school and you learn things in college your parents try to teach you things, and you think they don't know what they're talking about until you're older, and then you're like, wow, they were really wise. It's kind of like John. At this point, he's older in life, and he has seen some things, and as he walked and talked with Jesus, he didn't quite comprehend it all. But now in his older age, he has started to understand what Jesus was saying, what he was communicating, to process just sometimes as a 35-year-old, I don't have life wisdom, that someone who's older than me, who's in their 60s, understands that I still have to go through John sees that, John knows that, and he's writing this, but his main point, and if you're in John, you can actually jump to the very end, to chapter 20. This is his main point of writing this whole letter. In John 20, verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, here's his point, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's whole point of writing this is not to repeat what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already written. That's why most of what is in John is drastically not, is not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Some of it is, but almost 90% is different. Because his point is you have those, you've seen those, you have read those in your churches. I want to tell you a different side to let you see Jesus, not how they have described. They've done a great job. Let me pull back the curtains a little bit and let me see and show you Jesus in a different light, in a way that maybe can show you that you may have life in him. So let me pull this together is what he's saying. And so he writes it, and there's not a lot of miracles. I like narrative. I like stories. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have those. John doesn't have as many of those. But what you do find in John is that there's these, if you did word studies, word counts, there was specific words that if you read through Leviticus, which is a tougher book to read, there's all about the Levitical priesthood. There's all of these things. So if you did word studies on books of the Bible and different books, they'll tell you what the whole premise, what the whole point is. And so what you find most in John, there's a word count of this. Jesus is mentioned 275 times. 
So you get the point that Jesus is the focal point. God or Father is mentioned 175 times. Again, important. Believe, mentioned 98 times. Truth is mentioned 52 times. Life is mentioned 48 times. And you, so you see his main point, his premise is Jesus, God or Father, believe, truth, and life. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Luther, an early church, he started the Reformation, but Luther said, if you had the Gospel of John and the book of Romans and no, nothing else in Scripture because it got taken and got destroyed, we would be fine. Because John explains the truth of the gospel, we have life. Romans goes into the nitty-gritty, how do you live that out day to day? And so we find in John is something just a little bit different. And before we actually dive into John 1, you have to think John is older. He's wisened through the years. He's been abused because of his faith. He's been persecuted. He's been in exile. And he's coming back, and people are asking, he goes, what would I want to leave you with? You ever think about that legacy? Some of you are parents and grandparents. What legacy are you leaving behind? What are you leaving to your kids, to your grandkids? And John is probably thinking, if I had one thing that I could give, what would I want to leave behind? And so he writes his testimony, his account of who Jesus is. And before we even get into John, you have, we have to go to the Old Testament, because the Old Testament points to Jesus at every point. It goes back to there's a coming Savior, there's a coming Messiah. And so if you're in your Bibles in John, you can put your finger there and jump back with me to the book of Exodus, which is the second book in your Bible. There's Genesis and then there's Exodus. And specifically in Exodus chapter 12 is where we're going to go first. And this will make sense when we get to the end of the sermon. So you have to kind of keep with me through this train of thought. So Exodus 12, what you find is that there is a Israelites are in Egypt. If you're familiar with Sunday school or if you've been around church, there is the Israelites, the Genesis gives the history. Chapters 1 to 15, what happened in the world, where we come from, all of this good stuff. Genesis 15, it starts to zoom in on a specific person named Abraham and his descendants, who God chooses and picks as his people. And he calls them the Israelites. And the Israelites, at the end of Genesis, are moving into Egypt. And the reason they're moving into Egypt from Israel is because there was famine in the land. One of Jacob's son, one of, um, excuse me, not Jacob, I'm throwing a blank here. But one of the sons, Joseph, is in Egypt already. He's second in line to Pharaoh. And as Joseph's in there, Israel is coming in. And as they're coming in, they all of a sudden start to land in the top part of the region, right near the Mediterranean Ocean, right near, and it's called the land of Goshen. But in that, for 400 years, they are there over that period of time. And during that period, they become slaves. Joseph, at the end of Genesis, there's famine. Joseph is second in line to Pharaoh. As he is second in line to Pharaoh, he, cap he basically is an instrumental in gathering grain, produce, so that the land of Egypt survives. Israel moves in in famine. There's a period of time where they become as numerous, pretty much as there are stars in the sky, as God promised. But during that time, there's a Pharaoh that rises up that doesn't know what Joseph did to save the people, what Joseph did to save all of Egypt. And so he enslaves the Israelites. And for 400 years, they are in captivity. Fast forward as you get into Exodus, it says, okay, at the, really near the end of that captivity period, there's a guy named Moses who's risen up. Moses, as he's risen up, he thinks at 40 years of age, and there's a lot more to his story that we don't have time to, to speak on. At 40, he pretty much tries to free the Israelites. He pretty much starts to enact or thinks he is enacting God's plan. Doesn't work. And he has to escape Egypt. And for 40 years, he's wandering in the desert. He's a shepherder, and he meets God in the burning bush. Some of you are familiar with that story. And God says, now you go back to Egypt. 
Moses isn't a young whippersnapper. He's 80 when God says, go back. And he becomes God's prophet. And he says, but God, I don't speak well. I stumble. He goes, well, bring your brother Aaron with you. He'll be kind of your mouthpiece. You'll mimic. In a sense, Moses is representing God. Aaron is his prophet, as Moses really is the true prophet before God. Fast forward. There's a series of 10 plagues that happen because Pharaoh's heart is hard and he doesn't want anything to do with letting Israel go. Moses has come and said, let my people go. I was here. I get it. Let them go. Plague one, plague two, plague three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Pharaoh promises if they relent in the plagues, there is no relenting. He goes back on his word. And those plagues all dictate there's different gods in Egypt. God is pretty much showing I am better than all of them. I am greater than all of them. Exodus 12 comes. The 10th plague is about to come. And it says this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's house, as a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat, and shall make account for the lamb. So he's saying, you're going to go on this 10th day, you're going to find a lamb or a goat, doesn't matter, one of the two, and it's going to be a year old, and it's going to be without blemish, and you're going to have it for the family to eat. And if your family is too small in the house, then you're going to go to your neighbors and say, let's rally up and let's have enough people to eat this lamb. All right? So day 10, they're charged to go get a lamb, bring it into the house and prepare it. Keeps going, gets better. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, so very specific. You may take it from sheep or goat, so sheep or a goat, doesn't matter. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. So you're going to bring it into the house, and it's going to live with you for four days. Now, you have, anyone have young kids in here? I had young kids? What happens when you take a pet in the house? You, you name it, right? Fluffy, lamby, that's our stuffed animal lamby is in the house. I meant to bring a lamb, I didn't have it. You bring Lammy in, you're going to name it. Now that's part of the family. So God says on the 14th day, you're going to bring it in for four days. And after that period of time, on the 14th day, when the whole assembly, the whole congregation of Israel, they're going to kill the lamb at twilight. Imagine the shock. If you've got young kids and you've attached to this little lamb who's so sweet and cuddly and fluffy, and you're going to take it on the fourth day and kill it. There's a reason. Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels, so the top beam, the two sides of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire, with unleavened bread, think saltines. Okay, so when you think unleavened bread, it's bread that doesn't rise, saltines, so it's not a very fluffy bread at all. It's just like a cracker, pretty much. They shall take some of the blood, they'll do that. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire, and they shall eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn it. There's a point to this. You're supposed to paint the doorpost. And the 10th plague is this. God says, I'm going to send, pretty much I'm going to take the firstborn of all of Egypt. And as he comes in for the 10th plague, and as he takes and goes and visits the land of Israel, he kills every house that doesn't have the blood marked in the doorpost. But he passes over the doors that are marked with the blood. So every house in Israel that is marked with this, the firstborn son is not killed. And it's a remembrance. And after this, immediately, it says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night 
he and all his servants in Egypt, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses, up and go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, get out of here. That night, leave. Get out. And so they don't have time to prep bread. They're just kind of have their shoes on. This Passover is celebrated year after year after year, and it coincides very closely to our Christian celebration of Easter. Happens around the same time. Keep that in your head. It's celebrated. There's a whole thing called a Seder meal that goes in place that remembers all the plagues of Egypt that you come and you remember what God has done to free us from captivity. Year after year, they remember this. Keep that in your head. Jump one next book over to Leviticus. Favorite book, right? If you read Leviticus, you're like, that is not a cool book, Nick. Leviticus is awesome because it tells us something. It tells us about the priesthood. It tells us about what God is doing. It tells us about his laws and the land. In fact, Leviticus chapters 1 to 15 are all about the rituals and sacrifices and purity regulations. You want to know what the rules and regs are for in the faith of Judaism? You go to Leviticus chapters 1 to 15. It'll tell you all the rules, all the regulations, the rituals, the sacrifices. And chapters 17 to 27 are the characteristics of the holy living. How do you live this out? Now, if you're not very, if you don't like a dry read, it's, it's hard to get through. It's very dry. It's very specific. It's very finesse. But chapter 16 is a very special chapter in Leviticus. Chapters 1 to 15 are one way telling you what God desires, the rules, the regs. Chapter 17 to 27 are the characteristics of the holy living. But chapter 16 of Leviticus tells us how you actually can accomplish that. That if chapter 16 doesn't happen, it doesn't matter about the first part or the second part, if chapter 16 doesn't take place. Chapter 16 is all about the Day of Atonement. That's a Jewish festival called Yom Kippur that is celebrated more in the fall. And this is also a yearly festival. And it's not really festival or joyous. It's very much a downtrodden, somber moment. Think Good Friday. Not the best day. So let me read kind of what is happening on the Day of Atonement. Aaron... So again, Moses and Aaron, Aaron is the prophet, Aaron is the line of priesthood. So every descendant of Aaron is called a Levite. So they're the priest. And by lot, they choose who the high priest is every year. He goes, Aaron shall offer a bull as a sin offering for himself. In verse six, sorry, make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azel. That word azel, if it's in your scripture, in your book, it, all that means is, or it could say scapegoat. That's the translation. So one goat is for the Lord, one is the scapegoat. Aaron, the priest, the high priest, must first offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Everything he's done wrong, his bad thoughts, his whatever he has done wrong, he's got to offer a, a sin offering for him. Then they're to get two goats, and they're to pick by lot which is basically dice, but very specific dice, to choose which goat is for God and which is the scapegoat. We'll get there in a minute. Verse 15, if you jump down. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions of all their sins." Day of Atonement is very specific. The high priest is to come in, sacrifice a bull for his offering, 
his sin, excuse me. And then he's to go into the Holy of Holies. There was a tabernacle. It trans goes into the temple when Solomon builds that. And inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a big box, but there's two angels right on top called cherubim. Their wings go over the center of the top part of the, uh, the, the lid. And then in right below them is called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat is where the bull's blood is first flicked and put on, basically atoning for the high priest's sin. That he's to go in there after he's sacrificed, after he's confessed all of his sin. He goes into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles the blood of the bull. Then he goes out and gets two goats and they choose which one is for God and which one is the scapegoat. He goes back in with the, with the one that's for God to sprinkle again the mercy seat for the people of Israel to consecrate it, make it holy. And then he goes outside after this and he's to lay his hands on the goat that is for the scapegoat. In verse 20, it says, And when he has made an end of atoning in the holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall present the live goat, the scapegoat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. That's got to be a list. That's got to be a few hours of talking to this goat. Confess over it all the iniquities and at all of their transgressions, all of their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. So you got to picture this scene. It's a somber moment. That Leviticus says you're, to, you're going to have a relationship with God, and here's the rules and regs that you're going to do. But first and foremost, in chapter 16, there is the day of atonement, that there is a price to be paid for this relationship. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you read, in the beginning, God created the world. In Genesis 2, you read Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, you read, we screwed up, we messed up, sin enters. Because of sin, death has entered. And so the nation of Israel is to model to the surrounding areas, this is what health looks like. This is how you worship the one true God. This is what we were created for. And God said, the only way you're going to have that relationship is if there's atonement for your sin, here's what you have to do. And if you're in Israel, you've got to be thinking, I hope the priest remembers all of his prayers and all of his sins. I hope he remembers my sins. I hope he remembers the nations. And you're hoping through this whole process that it's accepted by God. Because if not, you got another year of not good. And if it's good and you do this, and they would, if you read other commentaries, the goat that goes off in the wilderness, they would chase it over a cliff and kill it so that it didn't wander back in because it's got all the sins. You don't want it back in the flock. It's going to spread, corrupt it. And they're to do this year after year. Verse 34, and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. Every year, this has to take place. Every year, the day of atonement has to happen or there is no relationship with God. You have to have the forgiveness of sins. You have to have this done. And you're better and you're hoping, I hope the priest does it right because all of chapter 16, one through 10 is the preparation. I hope they don't, Screw up the preparation. I hope they get this right. From the preparation side, you get the ritual step-by-step, step, verse 11 to 28, of what you're supposed to do and what order and sequence you're to do it. You read other parts of Exodus, you read that Aaron's sons, two of them brought strange fire and God kills them because they didn't follow the rules. So if you are part of the nation of Israel and you are wanting a relationship with God, you better hope the Day of Atonement goes well. And it's year after year, there was a specific goat known as the scapegoat that would go out. You would lay the hands so that the nation of the sins would be taken over and gone. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that.
Jump back with me to John. If you're in, in John 1, it reads that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When you would argue in Jewish custom, you, could, you would look at how far back can I take the argument. It's how you can win. So in religious circles, if you could argue back furthest, you would win the argument. So John is presenting and making an argument. In a sense, he's going to claim who Jesus is, that he is God himself. So he's going to make an argument. In the beginning was the word. He's going back to the very first pages. You read Genesis 1.1 in that first chapter, the very first book of the Bible, and you read, in the beginning, God. There was no before God. In the beginning, God. God has always existed, which makes your head start to hurt if you think about that. And he has no beginning. He has no end. In the beginning, he was always there. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, without void. And darkness was over the face. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the beginning, God. And the Spirit of God was hovering. What does John say? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. God spoke us into being. He spoke all of this into being. And John is making the argument, the light has been revealed from beginning. The Holy Spirit is right there in the beginning with God. And John is making the argument, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's making the argument that Jesus was there, and he'll reference him as the Word, that he was there in the beginning. He was with God. He was God and one and the same. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. And Paul is making this argument. He's talking about food and idols, but he says this in verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, through whom we exist. One God, one Father, one Son, one Spirit. God, creator of all things. And John is saying and echoing that same thing, that in the beginning was God. So it came upon a, a kind of a cool, neat little stat, and I'm not a math major, so I'm going to read this, and if I mispronounce, if you are math nerds, you can correct me after the service. There are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy, okay? So the average galaxy, one galaxy, there's an average of 1 billion stars. There are at least 100 million galaxies in the known space. Einstein believed that we have scanned with our largest telescopes only 1 billionth of a theoretical space. That means there are probably something like 10 and 20 zeros, 10 octillion stars in space. So think about that. How many is that? How many is octillion? One thousands equals a million. One thousand millions equals a billion. One thousand billions equals a trillion. One thousand trillions equals a quadrillion. One thousand quadrillions equals a quintillion. One thousand quintillions, a sextillion. One thousand sextillions, a septillion. One thousand septillions, an octillion. Okay? Mind-numbing for me. So 10 octillions is 10 with 20 zeros behind it. And Jesus created all of them. Let your mind think about that for a minute. Jesus created all the stars in the heavens that we can see. 10 octillion, he was there in the beginning and created all of them and calls them by name. How cool is that? That in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God you read verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you just have an itty-bitty speck in the darkest of night, it shines super bright. You go in the pitch-black caverns, as I mentioned back in the days when I was in youth ministry, back in the caverns, and you just light your light. You can't even see the light from my watch here. But in that cavern, it was like a beacon of light. And that is John is saying that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. This Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were created by Him, and it was in Him that all things were created. He is the light. How big is your view of God is pretty much what John is asking. You've heard about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You've seen your faith played out. How big is your view? Do you realize how big he is and what he has done, that he is the creator of all and in all? And then he goes a little side detail, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but came to bear witness. He said, there's a guy that's coming who bore witness to this. And if you want to read about John the Baptist, which we'll talk next week about, you can go to Luke and read about him, who he was. A bit of a crazy dude because he's out in the wilderness. He ate honey. He never cut his hair. He ate bugs. My daughter came home and said, he's a bad man. And I'm like, my wife's like, what? He's a bad man. He ate bugs and honey. He's a pretty cool guy for the guys, right? Because he eats bugs and honey. He's out in the wilderness. But he's a witness, And so you see this greatness of the good news explained in these next verses, that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, who did not receive him. Here's the kind of the good news of the gospel. Here is what I spoke on on December 25th that you can watch YouTube about. It says, he came to his own, did not know him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gives the right to those who believe in Jesus, the right to become children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Are we all image bearers? Yes. We are fearfully, wonderfully made. God said that let us make man in our image and our likeness so we bear God's image. Not all are children of God because it is right here. Those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But those who believe in this big God get to become children of God. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's saying, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and then it became flesh that we can understand and comprehend in human form. Fully God, because he's making that argument, the first part, fully human. How does that work? I have no idea. But he is fully God, fully man. And there's a reason for him becoming a fully man. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and the glory of the Son, the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. The greatness of grace really comes into this point, that God was both fully God and fully man. When you see the greatness of Christ, it explains the greatness of the Father. The greatness of Christ's love explains the greatness of the Father's love. And the greatness of Christ's grace explains the greatness of the Father's grace. 
May we continue to have the concept of God just as Aslan and C.S. Lewis said to Lucy back in the day, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy would see Aslan year after year and say, you look a little bit bigger. And he says, yep, every year I'm going to get a little bigger. And the point is, is her view of Aslan. And Aslan represents God. And every year that she learns and grows to him and knows him, her view gets a little bigger of him. And he grows a little bigger each time. And John is saying in this very first part of John 1 that how big is your view of this Jesus? You keep asking me about him. You keep asking me, did he do these things? Let me just tell you about who he is. That in the beginning, he was there, that he created all things. He is the light of man, that he gives the ability for you and I to become sons and daughters of the most high God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there's this John Baptist, this guy who bore witness to this. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given, he said, through Moses, the law. Go read Deuteronomy, you read about the law. You read about the day of atonement. It's all about the laws, the rules, the regs. Moses gave that. It is good because it came right from God. It was excellent because it was from God. The law was there to hold everything into account. There's a standard. No one can meet the standard. And then he pauses his testimony for just a minute. He says, and this is the testimony of John, that when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. Grace is given to us to become, but there's a greater part too of our testimony. And testimony, if you're worried about that word, it's a fancy word, it's your story. There's a greatness to telling your story, your faith. And that is what John is doing. He's just pointing everything back to Jesus. And John the Baptist will spend a lot of time with him next week because I'll come back to this as we work into Jesus coming on the scene but John is on the scene first. He's a cousin of Jesus. He's known entity to Jesus. And this is the testimony of John where the Jews, so the religious leaders, the priests, the Levites, who we read about in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem came to ask him, who are you? John didn't go to seminary. John didn't go to Bible school. John was in the wilderness. He had a Nazarene vow. You read about that in Luke, and which means he didn't cut his hair. He ate locust and wild honey. He ate bugs. He dressed in camel skin. So you're not thinking of someone like me who's clean cut. You're thinking of a, like a beard that's down to here. You've got long flowing hair that's probably not been washed. Maybe it is. They didn't necessarily have shampoo back in the day. He's not wearing the normal robes that you would wear as a priest or a Levite. He wasn't, didn't have money. But people are flocking to John from all over. They're running to hear his message. And these are good law-abiding citizens, law, good law-abiding Jews who even under the captivity of Rome are saying, this John has something to say and it's convicting and I need to go. And so because he's making such a stir, the religious elite who have the power, who have the authority, who basically, and they had the right intentions, we tend to slam the, the priests, the Pharisees, the Levites, and, and such. And they had the right intention to, to try to bring people back to what does God want? What it, but they got legalistic about it. It's all about the rules. It's all about the rules. you got to follow the rules. And they got to the, to the point where the rules were just as good as God's word. And that's not to be the case. And they come in and they're saying, who are you? You didn't go to our seminary. You didn't go to our Bible college. You didn't do this. Who are you and who do you think you are? They're not trying to listen to John. They're not asking, hey, you're doing some awesome things. People are coming to you. Let's cheer. Let's, let's encourage this. Who are you? He confessed and, didn't deny, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one. I'm not the prophet you've been looking for all of these years that was alluded to all through the Old Testament. 
And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those. So a committee was formed, and they sent a subcommittee to John. And the subcommittee is like, well, we got to go report back to the committee. He's going to report back to the high priest who you are and what you're about. John says, okay, who are you? Who sent us? What do we say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. The word was created through him, and the world did not know him. They rejected him. John is saying, he's in here among you, this prophet. I baptize you with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. And even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Feet in that day and age were not something to be proud of or looked on. And they, I could describe it in great detail. I always look at this of creation. I mentioned this before. Creation, it's hot, it's sweaty, it's the middle of summer, it's a music festival, you're surrounded by people. And at the music festival, there's the stage and there's the mosh pit. It's Christianized, so you're not really banging and slamming. It's just like you're jumping up and down. But as you jump up and down, there's rocks below you. And I never understood why there was rocks until I got there. And then I realized that and when you have hundreds of thousands of people jumping up and down, the rocks get pushed into the ground. And then you trample all the grass and you're left with dirt. But what happens when it's hot outside in the summer is as you hit the dirt, the dust rises up. And as you're jumping up and down, then you start to sweat profusely because it's hot outside. And sweat, like me, just drips down your legs, onto your toes. As you're jumping up and down, your feet are caked in mud, dirt, and grime. And who knows what else you're stepping in out there as well because they're shooting water and there's like, there's oh, it's, it's kind of gross. But back in the day, roads were this way and animals walked on the roads and it's hot, and it's dusty, and if you're walking on the roads, and the dust is picking up, and there's sweat on your feet, your feet are encaked not just in mud, but animal feces, and who knows what else is on the roads back then as well, so you're caked in it, and it's saying, it pretty much said that if you were, if I, as a pastor, when it was back in this day and age, I didn't pick a school, I picked a rabbi to follow, a teacher, and it was so looked frownly upon that a Jew was not allowed to wash the feet. And my rabbi, if I was following a rabbi, could make me wash. That was below. That was so bad. I wasn't allowed to do that because it was so disgusting. That was entailed for a servant, for a Gentile, somebody else. Because they said, well, yeah, you demean them. You can take advantage, but you can't go to the, That's the line. That's gross. And John is saying here, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal on his foot. And they would have taken that and said, What? who is this that you are talking about? Who you're not even, that, that is so below and you're saying you're not even worthy to do that. And so John comes and says this, the very next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Here's what he called him. Remember the day of atonement. Remember Lammy and Exodus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He looks out and all he sees is Jesus coming. He's done to declare he's God. He says he's the lamb. Day of atonement, he's the lamb that's going to pay the price for you and me. He's the lammy from the Exodus who's in your house for a time because you're going to get to know he's the one who's going to take the sin of the world. He doesn't say he's Jesus. He, doesn't say, he just says, behold, the lamb. And everyone would have known who's around him when he said that, day of atonement, that's the lamb of God. They would have known instantly what that meant and what that entailed. 
And you see that, that John is saying, the gospel of John, he's proclaiming, he is it, that you may believe and have life. And you read the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It's all about Jesus' crucifixion, most of it here, and it describes in detail 400 years before Jesus walks the scene. In verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the people, for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for the guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. You read about that, and John is saying, Jesus, he is the Lamb of God. He is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute that is going to be in our place for our sin. And John is trying to make this abundantly clear that this is who God is. He is the creator of all things. And he loved us so much that he, our pint-sized little anthill of a world, he takes notice of us. And he says, I love them. He didn't have to love us. He didn't have to come down, and yet he chooses to do that. The commentator writes this, he was not only the perfect sacrifice, but he was also the perfect eternal high priest. For he did not make atonement for himself, as the high priest does in Israel. Remember, the Levite, the high priest of the day, had to give the sacrifice for their sin first, then the nation. He didn't make atonement because he didn't need to, for he did not make atonement for himself as a high priest in Israel was obligated. Jesus had no sin. Thus, he was free to bear our sin and guilt. Our problem was not his problem, but he chose to make our problem his problem. As the eternal high priest, he has given eternal access to the heavenly throne room of God. The earthly tabernacle, the temple, was a copy, a model for the authentic realities of the heavenly tabernacle where God resides. By the blood of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus, as the perfect priest, intercessor, achieved the purging and atonement that the animals of the old system could never accomplish. Aaron's arena was earthbound, a replica that was designed to point to the eternal realities. Jesus' arena was the eternal, heavenly, most holy place. And in the heavenly throne room, the Lord transported his blood, makes intercession for us entirely and finally, after which he took up residence in the throne room, sitting at the right hand of the Father, whereas Aaron's proper place was outside the most holy place, never to dwell there. The Lord is at home in the presence of his Father. The animals year after year after year after year, day of atonement, to one and done with Jesus because he's perfect without blemish, because he's God himself and human. He makes atonement for your sin, my sin, on that cross. And that is the hope that we have. And that is what John is saying. He is God himself. He is fully God, fully man, the creator of all universe. And he has humbled himself to become the Lamb of God. Humbled himself. Such a point. 